in the Episcopal Church and Roman Catholic too, they, they march the Bible out holding it high up and say the Holy Gospel of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ according to St. Matthew and then they read it. They're inviting people to worship that Bible. They're inviting people not to be critical of that Bible and sometimes that Bible says terrible things. Bishop John Shelby Spong talks with me about his life's work, Christianity's future, and a faith that asks the right questions. Bishop Spong is the fourth guest in my series, Revisioning Christianity. His latest and likely his last book is unbelievable, why neither ancient creeds nor the Reformation can produce a living faith today. I said in this book that people will regard this, religious people will regard this book as a very radical book. But I'm convinced that time will mean that this book is not nearly radical enough. It's time for Progressive Spirit. Stay with us. You're listening to the podcast version of Progressive Spirit. If you enjoy the show, please go to iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, Podomatic, TuneIn, or whatever podcast app you use to listen, and give Progressive Spirit five stars, won't you? Contact me through ProgressiveSpirit.net with your thoughts and ideas about the show. And be sure to share this podcast on your social media. Follow on Facebook and Twitter. The website, again, is ProgressiveSpirit.net. For the Pacifica Radio Network, PRX, the Public Radio Exchange, and from the studios of KBOO in Portland, Oregon, this is Progressive Spirit, progressivespirit.net. I'm John Shuck. This is the fourth part of a series on revisioning Christianity. Today's guest has been a spiritual mentor for many, many people, especially for believers in exile. Uh, there are a lot of people out there that are exiles, spiritual exiles, believers in exile, I call them who just don't want to put up with what they hear from the church every Sunday, but who are deeply spiritual and who are deeply uh, believing, and they think Christianity has got to change its, its point of view or it will not survive. Bishop John Shelby Spong has been on the leading edge of progressive Christianity. Over the decades, he's shared his own honest journey with faith, doubt, and social activism as an Episcopal priest, bishop, and author. Some of his many books include Living in Sin, A Bishop Rethinks Human Sexuality, Rescuing the Bible from Fundamentalism, A Bishop Rethinks the Meaning of Scripture, and Why Christianity Must Change or Die, A Bishop Speaks to Believers in Exile. I think you've got to stop being in the 13th century. Mm -hmm. uh, the 13th century portrayed God as an angry judge or, or a harsh parent and portrayed all the other people as... as uh, weak people and, and sinful people, and they always have to say, have mercy on me. We say, have mercy on me oh, so many times in the liturgy that it just makes me ill. I think you've got to raise that to consciousness. He's the author of the newly released Unbelievable, Why Neither Ancient Creeds Nor the Reformation Can Produce a Living Faith Today. I worry about our nation because it's, it's, it's on the wrong side of most of the issues of the world, and we're the most powerful nation in the world. So I don't know what's going to happen. This conversation with Bishop Spong is the fourth of five interviews in my series. Already we heard from Bart Ehrman, author of The Triumph of Christianity. I mean, there's no doubt that the Christians won. I mean, they, they took over the Roman Empire, uh, but there were also losses. Uh, so at the end, it's hard to tell whether the, the gain was greater than the loss or not. John Dominic Crossan, Resurrecting Easter. This image at least proposes one solution. Is there anything that can stop violence except nonviolent resistance to violence? We also heard from David Skirbina, the Jesus hoax. I think he completely knows he's making a hoax. I think he knows he's lying to people. In fact, I call him a master liar. In fact, I call him the epic liar of all of history. Next week, I speak with Angela Yarber about the Holy Women Icons Project. All of those interviews are available on podcast at progressivespirit.net. Bishop Spong, welcome to Progressive Spirit. Thank you very much. Good to be with you, John. Now, in all three interviews uh, that I had with you before, you said that that particular book would probably be your last one, and I was obviously pleasantly surprised that your muse kept you going, but this really might be the last one, isn't it? Yeah, I had a stroke in September of, of 2016, and I've slowed down considerably. I've regained my ability to walk, 
but uh, I don't think I've regained my ability to go through the concentrated period of reading and writing and research to do another book. So I'm, I'm fairly sure this is my last one. I was thinking that this is kind of like your your letter to the Romans. <laughs> Would you use that as a metaphor? Yeah, I think that's right. This 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 goes back and touches all the themes, and and yet approaches them in a rather rather different way, a little more mature way. It, it gave me an opportunity to think about these things, and to uh, put them together, and I really enjoyed writing it, uh, although it was really hard when. When uh, I'd done about 90% of it before the stroke, we had to do about 10% of it and all the editing after the stroke. And it's just really very difficult. It was. A, I'm proud of it. I'm I'm delighted with the outcome. And the book is called uh, Unbelievable, Why Neither Ancient Creeds Nor the Reformation Can Produce a Living Faith Today. Why Christianity on the back cover is is no longer believable and, and how we can change that. Uh when did you kind of come to realize that uh, Christianity really just wasn't believable? Well, it's it's been a long time. Uh, what, what is not believable is the way Christianity is articulated. We think about a God above the sky. We Constantly in our worship, we portray God above the sky. Well, that hadn't had any relevance for human beings since Copernicus in the 16th century. We know the sky is made up of, of vast space, planets, uh, suns galaxies, empty empty, uh, empty space, and ancient holes, uh, black holes, uh, made up of a lot of things except a person. And uh, people, people use that phrase even today, and it, it strikes me as strange. Our Father who art in heaven, we say, well, where's heaven? Well, it's above the earth. That comes out of the era when the earth was the center of a three-tiered universe. That's just not where we believe anymore. And uh, and so your book is designed into uh, a, a several chapters with a number of themes. It's almost like a a, a systematic theology. That's right. It's uh, I borrowed that from Martin Luther. He he put a book out, or didn't put a book out, but he put out ninety nine theses on uh, on various issues in the church's life. Well, I, I don't believe people will ever remember ninety nine. And, but I think you, I, I'd reduced them to 12, and then I went into great detail. Uh, God above the sky is just one. Uh, human beings in the image of God is another. We know that human beings came out of an evolutionary process that uh, began about 3.8 billion years ago and has reached the point of self-conscious uh, uh, humanity. That's a long journey. Where in that did we become like the image of God. Uh, it's actually the other way around. We created God in our image. And what we've got to do is to go beyond the human words and see the the divine uh, in, in the midst of all of life. And your first thesis is uh, about God. And of course, these 95 theses that um, Luther came up with 500 years ago. Uh, yeah, and, and, it's 95, not 99. I did, did uh, correct that. Yeah, uh, ninety-nine images, uh, images for God, maybe uh, from the Muslim tradition. But anyway, Luther. So he, Luther writes his theses. Uh, but what was? Well, let's talk about the Reformation just for a second. What was its uh, really its impact, its gift, and where did it fall short? Well, it fell short in that all it did was to jumble the symbols. It didn't change anything. We came out of the Reformation with the same Bible, the same creed, the same hymns, the same liturgies. And all that we really changed was the authority of, of who was the legitimate priesthood. Uh, Rome continued to believe it through historic ordination, and the Protestant world had a different idea. And that those two things have have kind of run out. Uh, nobody nobody argues about those things anymore. They don't make a lot of sense. But uh, in the Reformation, the war was it was fierce. You're breaking down all of the authority of the ages. Uh, we had the Spanish Armada, where the Catholic Spain was attacking Protestant uh, England to try to reclaim it for the Catholic world. And the fact that the Armada ran into a storm uh, caused people to say that God was on the side of the Protestant King of England. Uh, this is a pretty good thing to have happen. <laughs> uh, but... Uh, and they fought across Europe all the time, trying to impose the old order on the new world or to protect the new world. 
And people liked the new order because they didn't have to pay taxes to Rome. So the princes of Europe, especially Northern Europe, uh, followed the Protestant Reformation for, for reasons that are not really religious. Uh, they were very political. Now, that's, as you go across Northern Europe, the papal army didn't get that far north. And so Northern Germany, Scandinavia, uh, England, uh, Scotland, they all became Protestant. And Southern Europe, where the papal army got uh, pretty close, stayed stayed uh, married to the Roman tradition. But I've traveled through Europe, and the Roman tradition is dead. Uh, so is the Protestant tradition. Now, people don't go to church in Europe. Uh, I was in I was in Sweden. About 15% of the population from Sweden goes to church. I was in Finland, and that's Protestant. I was in Finland, and about 5% of the population goes to church. England's not much better. I was in France, and and it just doesn't exist. In in Spain, the the church doesn't care for for Roman Catholics because they identify them with Franco. It's really amazing how deeply uh, Franco uh, changed Spain's religious life. People think of Spain as a very religious nation, but I was at the University of Madrid, and I said, well, do you have your Roman Catholic bishops come here? And they said, my God, no, we wouldn't have them come over here. They haven't got anything to say. Well, that's uh, that's pretty... University of Madrid, Madrid is the biggest university in, in Spain, then the Roman Catholics are just shut out of them. Uh, so Europe is really interesting. And in America, we've we've developed a, a strange kind of evangelical uh, religion. Uh, most of the most of the religion of the of the of the Americas uh, is on the wrong side of almost every issue abroad. They're against women. They're against gays. They're against blacks. And they've organized on this way all through the history. So we had to overcome the church in every social event. We had to overcome the church in order to make progress with uh, with religion, and and uh, that's a very interesting thing. I said in this book uh, something I thought was interesting. I said in this book that people will regard this religious people will regard this book as a very radical book, but I'm convinced that time will mean that this book is not nearly radical enough. It does not go into a reformation as deep as what the one we're in. And uh, Christianity is in a battle for its life. I'd like to think it might win that battle, but I'm not certain. Well, in one level, you'd like it to win, but another level, as you've mentioned, of all of the uh, ills that Christianity continues to cause, it'd be not so bad a decision, perhaps, if it lost. I mean, I'll, I'll push back in a different direction. There are those who feel that Christianity is a, it's a good thing that it's going on its demise. Um, how do you respond to that? I think that's that? true. Well, I think that's true. And if you, if you look at history, you find that every time we've come across something uh, the church has been on the wrong side of that issue. They were the wrong side of divorce. They were the wrong side of homosexuality. They were the wrong side of the racism. Uh, even the Pope owned slaves at one time. They were on the wrong side of women. Uh, we had to fight the church all the way through. We had to fight the Bible, too, because the Bible was co-opted by the church. And and it's it's really a strange thing to do that. I, I, I'm still a Christian. I'm still a, a believer but I'm not a believer in the stuff that we that we call Christianity today. I think you, I think you can have a sense of God that's deeper than anything that's going on in any church today. I don't believe in heaven and hell. I don't think they hold a thing more than I don't think they're a thing about eternity. I think they're about behavior control in this world, and uh, and yet there are places where you go and say that you're against hell or don't believe in hell. My goodness. They, they start praying for you and start battling you and want you to want to kill you. Uh, it's an interesting thing to watch out for. Yeah. Bishop Spong is my guest. Bishop John Shelby Spong, the author of his uh, latest and last likely book, uh, Unbelievable, Why not, Neither Ancient Creeds Nor the Reformation Can Produce a Living Faith Today. So the question back to that is, uh, what can a Reformed, and we're talking about not 50, 16th century reform, but now a 21st century reform Christianity that you're talking about, speak to our world. Uh, what can it help us do that, uh, say, atheism or secularism cannot? Well, I think it, it provides us with a, a sense of spiritual truth 
deeper than the one that we live with. I don't think secularism is evil. I think secularism is is Christianity without the supernatural. Mm. Uh, and, and what they need to do is discover their own roots and they find their way back. But they don't want those roots that continue to draw us into religion as opposed to secularity. Uh, I quoted my daughter in this book, and, and it's still a powerful story. My daughter has a Ph.D. in, in physics from Stanford University. And she said to me, Dad, the questions the church is asking, we don't even ask anymore. The church is answering things that we aren't concerned about anymore. And uh, she's not anti-God or anti-religious, but she doesn't find the church a particularly meaningful experience for her. And uh, it's it's been interesting to watch that develop in our own family. Well, you know, I I think she she's right. I mean, my denomination. I'm a Presbyterian minister, and and my denomination has lost members steadily over the past fifty years. I, I think it's most of our youth go into a secular life. I think I'm, my I think my hunch is probably correct. the same for the Episcopal Church as well. That the thinking churches it's are the ones who are losing. Every one of the mainline churches. Yeah. Every one of the mainline churches is in a uh, statistical freefall. And I've, I've been retired as a bishop about 18 years. The budget of my diocese today is about a million dollars less than it was the year I retired. That's not progress. And our churches would close if they weren't if they weren't rented out. Uh, some of them are like real estate holding companies. They're rented out to every organization you can imagine to get the money to keep the buildings open. It's not a healthy time. Now, I, I, I'm I still a minister, um, and I still think that there may be a place for the social justice aspect of it. I mean, there, there's something still about going. Um, you mentioned that uh, churches have been on the wrong side, but of course not everyone in churches has been on the wrong side. Uh, many times people have taken their faith to do positive social justice change. And, and I, I wonder, there, is there a role there still that can be... Um, well, I hope so. The black church certainly was had a role and played a role in the civil rights movement. But by and large, they were opposed by the white church. Now, we've come around on that. Uh, it gets to be nonsensical after a while uh, to to be saying and doing the things that we used to do. When I was raised as a boy in Charlotte, North Carolina, we were sure that uh, segregation was the will of God. And we used to go find text in the Bible to prove that. And I started unraveling from that when I was in the fifth grade. There was a party going on in the local school to celebrate the war. And this is World War II, a party, a patriotic assembly. And they asked my school to send three children over to, to participate in this. My school accepted, and I got chosen to be one of the three children. I don't remember anything about that except it was like a wonderful chance for me to miss school. We got in that car and went over there, and it was a black school. I'd never been realized that we were in a segregated school system. And that's that's hard for people to right imagine because it's so deeply within our society. I didn't notice fountains that said white and colored and restrooms that said white and colored. That, that just didn't register with me. But being in the fifth grade, that did register. And when they when I went to that assembly and they stood and sang the national anthem, and said the Lord's Prayer together. You could still do that in North Carolina in 1949, uh, 1943 it was. Uh, and when we, and my eyes just got bigger and bigger, and I saw, I saw more black children than I ever seen in my life, and I saw black school teachers. The only black people I'd known until this time had been servants in somebody's home, or yard men, and I got a whole new vision. They asked us to stand and sing the national anthem, and I stood up because I was a Cub Scout, and I knew the national anthem, and I felt very proud of that. And I discovered they didn't sing the national anthem. They sang the hymn, Lift Every Voice and Sing, which they described as a black national anthem. And the, the children knew every word of this, and they sang it lustily. And it talked about the latch of the masters and the bleeding feet of slavery. And I'd been taught in my life that... Uh, the slavery was a good thing, a good thing we had done for those poor, ignorant people in Africa. We taught them how to brush their teeth, and, and it was, uh, let them be baptized, and it changed my image of slavery. Now, from the seventh grade on, on fifth grade on, that's a pretty radical change to be going on inside a little boy. My mother and father did not, did not share that change. 
and and yet the church was diametrically opposed. I was so proud of the fact that Reverend Martin Luther King uh, headed up the civil rights movement, and on most of the clergy were were uh, members of the civil rights movement. And when we got to the gay and lesbian battle, it was the same thing. The mentality of hatred toward gay people was intense, and nobody everybody assumed that they were that, that way because they were sick. Well, I we learned a lot about homosexuality, and sickness wasn't a part of it. It it has something to do with the brain, and it's a it's a natural thing in the world. Some people people are born that way; they don't become homosexual. And when that finally dawned on me, it's a civil rights another civil rights issue. And you wrote a book and, about that too. In fact, the first I line did. in one of your book is uh, "Sex drove me back to the Bible," which I've That's always correct. loved. And and you were involved. Uh, you were the responsible, really, for a lot of the movement within the Episcopal Church, for sure. Uh, ordination of the first openly gay um, priest was in yes. your diocese. Is that right? And That's it, right. And it was a book more controversial than I've ever been through. Can you tell me a little uh, bit about that? What what happened then? Well, it was it was bitterly controversial. The bishops of the church. Uh, passed a resolution uh, condemning me and uh, and apologizing for me and disowning me, but they only passed by four votes, and that surprised the Dickens out of them. They thought this would be an overwhelming vote, but the, it split on on urban and rural areas. I had the bishops of every major city in America, and the bishops of the rural area were all against it, and they were uh, ahead by four votes. That shock was such a shock that uh, they couldn't believe it. And that was the that was the high watermark. We kept, well, the low watermark, we kept going against that, and we finally won. We ordained a gay bishop in New Hampshire. And uh, you, when you do that, you, you, there's no more argument. But it was, a, it was a fascinating battle. I went to the General Convention in September of 1990, I guess it was, and uh, the whole agenda of that convention was me and my diocese, and a resolution was introduced to disassociate from me and from my diocese for this terrible thing I'd done. And they debated it for four hours. I didn't say a word. I told the, the presiding bishop that I wasn't going to speak. I wasn't going to be defensive. So I sat there silently and just listened to them bashing. And when they called the vote, they wanted it on a, on a roll call vote because they wanted their names to be identified back home. And they won by 78 to 74 with two abstentions. That couldn't have been closer. And uh, it wasn't a victory at all. After the, after that speech, the press didn't want to talk to anybody but me. They didn't care about that. Uh, because that indicated that the church had come a long way. Uh, when I retired as bishop, I had some 27, 29 gay clergy in the diocese. And I don't know how many are there now, but it's a goodly number. Well, once they... Uh... Once the argument starts to happen, it's pretty much over. Yeah, I think I used to say that. Once you start arguing about homosexuality, the argument's over. You don't start arguing about it until you get a new idea about what causes it. And when you get that new idea, you you have to come to my conclusion. And uh, well, we've we've had some wonderful gay clergy. The the dean of the cathedral in Cleveland is a ch- child of this diocese, a gifted woman. Her name is Tracy Lynn, and she has been a terrific priest in this diocese and in this church, and I'm very proud of her. Bishop Spong, uh, have you ever looked back in your career and and and, and your post-retirement uh, and your writing and your speaking and said, "Gosh, I wish I had not been as outspoken as I was. I, I would have been better if I just gone with the flow." No, I don't think that. I'm, I'm afraid <laughs> that's that's wishful thinking. Now, what I what I do think is that it is incredibly uh, great to watch the church catch up with me, uh-huh. uh, and and they have. I'm not controversial anymore. Oh, this new book will make me a little controversial, but I'm not controversial anymore. I'm within the mainstream of of organized religion because the church has come to a new understanding. All of the great thinkers of the church, the top theologians, are raising the questions that I'm raising today, uh, and and they've got to be dealt with. What about we have something called Jesus Seminar, where they yeah. this is commonplace. It just doesn't 
it doesn't occur to those people to think that this is particularly controversial. Let's talk about the Jesus Seminar, or, or West Star, the bigger name for that. This movement started by Bob Funk uh, in the late yeah. 1980s, I guess, was really a response, to, response in a sense to fundamentalism. Uh, Jerry Falwell, the so-called moral majority, would you say the Jesus Seminar has been successful? I would say so. Bob Funk was a tremendous leader, but he, he left the thing when he died. He left the organization a bit bereft because he it was his idea and he drove it to the to the as fast as he could and he didn't plan for people to succeed him we've had a struggle uh with building a new structure bobby and bobby didn't even take a salary and uh we had when he had his own money and so when we tried to do something we found we were without sufficient money but it's it's come a long way and uh it publishes the best religious journal in the world uh, four times a year, and that's a major piece that uh, that we keep. That's the fourth I R. Don't, I don't. Yeah. Hmm? That's the fourth R. Is that the what you fourth mean? Fourth R. Yeah. yeah, it really is an outstanding piece of work. Mm-hmm. And I was talking to the rector of my church today. We've set up a a, a lectureship in this church, and and it's a lectureship for, for those who are walking the edges of Christianity. And I said to her, if you don't take this magazine, you don't know who the people walking the edges are. You'll bring in somebody who's uh, sort of wrestling with old ideas that won't make any difference. And uh, it's it's really true. And we've had some tremendous people. Uh, it's about 12 years old now. We've had uh, Karen Armstrong, for example, and and uh, a lot of people that are, that are at the fringe of the Christian intersection with thought in the world today. I'm really proud of it. What do you make of the theological seminaries today? Uh, I well, I have an opinion on my own, but I was kind of wondering: are, are they are, are are they still in the old days in some respects, or are they very, catching very up? much so? The one I attended certainly is they they're arguing the concepts that were wrought in the fifties, but uh, there are some individual members in the theological seminaries that make a difference. Uh, the, the Methodist Seminary at Drew University is about five miles from me, and, and I'm I'm there a lot. I use the library a lot. And the dean of that seminary is so relevant, but I'm not sure that the seminary is, but he is. He has a vision of what a seminary ought to be, and he's driving toward that vision. And I think that's the best you can hope for. Uh, I think that there, there aren't many churches in this world that are going to organize themselves according to my theology because they probably wouldn't survive. But they're, they're going, there are some that will hear my mm. theology and will incorporate it into the, into the life of that congregation as they are able to do over a period of time. And, the, and that will be a great, a great lesson. Uh, there are a lot of people out there that are exiles, spiritual exiles, believers in exile, I call them, who just don't want to put up with what they hear from the church every Sunday but who are deeply spiritual and who are deeply uh, believing, and they think Christianity has, has got to change its, its point of view or it will not survive. My guest is Bishop John Shelby Spong. His book is unbelievable. Why neither ancient creeds nor the Reformation can produce a living faith today. More to come. Stay with us. I'm John Schock, and this is Progressive Spirit. Progressive Spirit is produced every week. It couldn't happen without the financial support of my congregation, Southminster Presbyterian Church in Beaverton, Oregon. Southminster's website is www.southmin.org. Progressive Spirit is produced in the studios of KBOO in Portland, Oregon for the Pacifica Radio Network and PRX, the Public Radio Exchange, as well as podcast. Show KBOO some love, won't you? KBOO.FM and click donate. Bishop John Shelby Spong is my guest. We're talking about his new book, Unbelievable, Why Neither Ancient Creeds Nor the Reformation Can Produce a Living Faith Today. This is Progressive Spirit. I'm John Shuck. You mentioned your theology. Um, what is theology and what is the role of theology? Especially we think of theology literally what talk about God, but when God's no longer a supernatural being or, or whatever, um, 
what is really the focus of of what theology could uh, should and could be? Well, it's hard to say because you almost have to invent a, a new vocabulary. I don't think we. Well, let me quote let me quote uh, Frank Forrester Church, who was a minister at All Saints Unitarian Church in New York City before he died. He said, God is not the name of God. It's our, the name of our experience of God. And you've got to know that there's a difference between who God is and what my experience of God is. And that makes a real uh, great difference. I don't believe in God as a theistic being. Uh, I don't believe there's a hovering presence over our, over our world trying to answer our prayers. But I think there is a power of, of spirit that is in the depths of our life, and we've got to find it, and we've got to relocate uh, our theology on the basis of that. And you talk about in your book a, a, a theology of human fulfillment. I mean, certainly when we look at whatever the human situation is and, and, and the th- things that are facing us uh, with, with peak oil and, and the, the wars and their environmental catastrophe and, and, and most human beings, most Americans being depressed, uh, <laughs> that somehow theology needs to move toward whatever that makes humans flourish, doesn't it? Yeah, but what we're in in the world is a political backlash, uh, and I think part of that is that we had a, a rather an outstanding president named Barack Obama, who was a black man, and he was outstanding despite the fact he was a black man. That's the way some people said. But having a black man in that powerful position for eight years really did curdle the the opposition, and there. They were willing to find anybody who would give expression to their opinion, their racist opinion, and they found him. And it's in a backlash period in our nation. I worry about our nation because it's 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 on the wrong side of most of the issues of the world, and we're the most powerful nation in the world. So I don't know what's going to happen. I would like to, I'd like to think it's not going to last more than four years because I think backlashes can be terribly dangerous, and I think we are in a backlash. Uh, immigration is the, is the primary issue, and immigration is just one of those issues that's so powerful because it's so awful. Uh, you can't shut out people of the world. You can't put more force them to live where they don't want to live, and you, you can't keep your nation pure and the same race. That's just not going to work, and particularly the homosexual battle because uh, that's in every nation of the world, and it, it's they're emerging in Europe. Homosexual people have come out of the closet, and they're not ever going back in. And they're very much more open than they are in the United States, so we're catching up. And uh, it's it's really exciting to see that. But the climate is another. Uh, climate change is, is real. Uh, we, are, we were just under 23 inches of snow just two days ago in the northeast. That's a, that's a real change in the weather patterns. Yeah, I also want you to talk, if you wouldn't mind, a little bit about uh, uh, empire building um, and and perhaps uh, the the imperialistic demands. I don't mean to put those words in your mouth, but they're they're certainly mine. Uh, with and and the state religion, I don't know what we would call that. Um, the uh, imperial religion in the United States that just seems to accept American exceptionalism and 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 go all over. Is there anything that Christianity, perhaps the teachings of Jesus or something, maybe a resource in? in and, and uh, for peace? Well, in the last chapter of the book, I, I called it universalism. And I think that's what Christianity has got to reflect. Uh, there's there's no, nobody is exceptional. Uh, that's just fooey. Remember, we had, think of all the Jews that were brilliant people. Think, think about the Jews that had become brilliant, like Einstein. And yet we we cast that nation and treated them as slaves for a great deal of time. They treated them as overt acts of, with overt acts of hostility and another. And we finally let them come out and breathe, and they become brilliant people. Uh, think about the blacks who were slaves and didn't get a chance to get educated. And now we we produce Martin Luther King and and uh, the president of South Africa and and other people that are just brilliant people. Uh, I admire Nelson Mandela as much as I admire anybody that ever lived uh, because he was a leader and he didn't compromise and he didn't carry a a grudge against uh, people that oppressed him. He came out of jail 
and set up a, a marvelous kingdom they're having trouble in South Africa now, but it's going to survive. And I just I just think the world is so great. We've got to get to the place where we accept every person on the basis of what he is, on, on all colors, all sexes, all genders, all uh, all everything. And the Christian Church has been in the power position for so long, and it continues to want to keep that power position. It wants the position of privilege and prejudice, not for all Americans, uh, but for white Americans. That's that's still the 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 rule of our society. In your book, you write, um, this is the faith I seek to share with the world, to embrace life, to increase love, to have the courage to be. These, for me, are the doorways through which I walk into the mystery of God. And I, I personally, I resonate with that a great deal. My question is, does, does that kind of faith need a church? Well, maybe not, but I think most people need a community. And what the church needs to become is the community of believers who are seeking uh, the truth of God. And but they can't seek it if any time you you go out on tangent somebody hits you. So I think we've got a long way to go, but I think we do need a community. When I'm when I'm in my depressive phases, it helps to have somebody around you. And uh, the church I attend has a not everybody, but it has a a strong community at its core where you can be who you are and say what you believe, and it's an acceptable thing. And it enriches that church. I don't want that church to become just like me, uh, but I want that church to be such that I can identify with it and can be part of that community and be part of that conversation. And I and I am, and and I really rejoice in that. Well, that's what I, was kind I, of think, I found that fascinating. That you can, after all that you've done, I don't know if I found it fascinating, but I found it interesting and important that after all of the struggles that you've had with the church and and changing it and and the titles of of your books and the works that you've done, not only the titles but obviously the content of your books, why Christianity must change, and yet you go to church yourself for your own. I, do. I really love it. I'm I'm it's strange. I love my church in Richmond and. It's a, it was called the Cathedral of the Confederacy, and Robert E. Lee huh. and Jefferson Davis were both members, and they were proud members, and that's a great battle that's going on in that church. But I went to that church in 1969, and I taught a Bible class, and I taught said everything in that class I've said in my books, and they loved it. They ate it up. They They came in great numbers. We had as many as 300 people attending that Bible class, and I've, I've gone back to that. It was there last week. Uh, for their Lenten services, and we had the biggest crowd we had during Lent. And and I'm an old man now. I, I find it really strange that I can articulate stuff and people will come. But we had over 300 people in that church. That's a daily service at 12 noon. That's uh, that's big attendance. And and it's uh, there's a there's a core of people in that church that will never change. They've got a vision of something. And they will make that church a, a, a beacon of hope in the life of that city. What do you think about the liturgy of the church? And I'm thinking with the Episcopal Church, there's there's a lot, a lot of liturgy. All, all of those readings yeah, and really all is. of the the language it goes to an elevated God and, and, and whatnot. Um, it, what's the role of liturgists in, in a new well, age? Can we start over or what do we do? I think you've got to stop being in the 13th century. Mm -hmm. uh, the 13th century portrayed God as an angry judge or, or a harsh parent and portrayed all the other people as, as uh, weak people and, and sinful people, and they always have to say, have mercy on me. We say, have mercy on me oh, so many times in the liturgy that it just makes me ill. I think you've got to raise that to consciousness. I like to, th I like to talk about the way we treat the Bible in church. Uh, in the Episcopal Church and Roman Catholic too, they they march the Bible out, holding it high up, and say the Holy Gospel of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ according to St. Matthew, and then they read it. They're inviting people to worship that Bible. They're inviting people not to be critical of that Bible, and sometimes that Bible says terrible things. I like to go through it sometimes and, and say, uh, well, let's look at this and see if we think this is the Word of God. Wives obey your husbands, slaves obey your masters, and, and pull out a whole bunch of texts like that. And they say, of course not. Well, stop acting as if the Bible is a special book. And and in the liturgy, we we read the Bible in church right regularly, and we wind up saying, this is the word of the Lord. 
well, I'm going to say this is the word of the Lord, uh, and and I want them to be critical of that, but I still love the Bible. I want I think the answer is to go deeply into the Bible and get beyond the level of myth and and guilt and fear, and find out what it's really talking about. And that makes that makes me a happy person. I I really enjoy my churches, uh, my particularly the one I attend right now and my former church in Richmond. I enjoy them tremendously. And I look forward to being there, and and I talk with the members of that church, and they still, they they are still willing to be uh, people on the journey. That's what the Christian church has got to be. Yeah, yeah. They say these things like, "This is the word of God." I think it's uh, well, maybe it's the word of the Godfather. You know, uh, well, it could be. <laughs> I wanted yeah. to. There are two things that I, I want to get to. Uh, your your book is called uh, Bishop John Shelby Spong. My guest. His book is called Unbelievable: Why Neither Ancient Creeds Nor the Reformation Can Produce a Living Faith Today. It's a probably Bishop Spong's last book of a long illustrious career of of important books. Uh, uh, of, of faith and challenging um, mythology that no longer works and in many cases has been very bad for humanity. Uh, you come up with 12 theses in your book, God, Jesus, Original Sin, and so forth. In my own ministry, Bishop Spong, the two issues that seem to be hard for those uh, who are in the process of change are prayer and life after death. Those two things That's are difficult. Exactly right. I one of your first books. The two issues yeah. that people raise most of those questions about. And last week when I was in Richmond, I did the section on prayer. I don't have an answer for prayer, uh, but I know that what we talk about doesn't work. And I, I used illustrations from my pastoral experience to talk about it. I had a friend who was a, a woman parishioner who was in the hospital at, at Charlottesville and who called me up and asked me to come up and see her uh, after I'd moved to Richmond. And I did, and I found out that she had pancreatic cancer and had about four or five months to live. She was in her early 40s with with three young children. And that's as difficult a situation as I've ever been. How do you deal with that? Well, I dealt with it by going into it, going into it deeply. When I left that hospital room after about three hours, she told me everything about her life that you can finally talk about on the other side of the the fear of death because... uh, you, you just live in a different way. I lived in the honesty of that period of time with her and then several other times before she died. And and I don't believe that uh, that prayer is the thing to, that works there. She, I asked her as I left her room if I could say a prayer with her, and she said yes. Uh, she, I think she probably didn't want to say no, but I don't know what that meant to her. And I closed my eyes and I rattled off a prayer that put together every pious cliche I'd ever heard. And then I drove home and I wondered back about that, that that evening. I wondered which was the prayer, the time we sat there and talked so openly and honestly that we touched a new dimension of humanity, or that pious prayer of, that uh, said at the end that uh, made me feel like I'd done my job. And I decided that, that I wasn't going to pray again in my life if I couldn't pray as honestly as I lived in that period of time with that woman. It was just a beautiful relationship. That's rare, though. <clears throat> so most people can't stand to walk on that side of the relationship. And uh, and I'm glad that I could. And I saw something I had never seen before in, in, that, in what prayer is. It's daring to be who you are in the presence of God with another person. That's That's my answer to prayer, not... Lord, give me a rainy day tomorrow because I need to have some time off or give me a rainy day so I don't have to go to something I don't want to go to. And that kind of that kind of piety of prayer just doesn't work. Uh, that, that's a beautiful statement that you just said, that honest connection uh, with others and with God is, is really the form of prayer, and so often we cover it over with a cliched thing. That's right. We're afraid to be vulnerable. We've got the wrong thing we call prayer. Prayer is being, not doing. Uh, when St. Paul said he wants you to pray without ceasing, I don't think he meant you were supposed to say prayers without ceasing. I think you're supposed to live your life as a prayer open to God in the midst of the exigencies of humanity and and in the presence of other people. And when that happens, it's an ecstatic experience. And it carries it carries you for days and weeks. You're not going to have many like that in your life. Maybe five or six relationships like that where you learn 
the difference between praying and being. And uh, I wouldn't take anything for those. You wrote a, a previous book, uh, Eternal Life. Now you talked about the mysteries of beyond beyond death itself. Tell yeah. me about <laughs> that. I, I, where... What do you make of it? Uh, the whole thing. Well, uh, do do we somehow? Survive? Yeah. Do we somehow? Is our consciousness somehow? Does it absorb into a universal consciousness? What What, what have you uh, come to realize? I think realize? most of our vocabulary is simply no good at that point, because you, you're talking about something you then cannot experience. But I look at I look at human life. It's it's evolved over a period of 3.8 million years into our present shape. We need to recognize that it's not the final shape of humanity. Evolution's going on today, and we know that because the flu vaccine doesn't work every few days because the the the, the germ evolves to get ahead of our, our vaccinations. We know that, but what what does it what does it mean? I think I think that human beings are on a pilgrimage into the mystery of God. And we we don't know how to talk about that. I see I see hints of it everywhere. I see hints of it in Carl Jung's The Collective Unconscious, where we are sort of bound together. I see hints of it in the in the ability that people have in inside life to communicate on deep levels with other people. I don't know what it amounts to, but I'm confident that there is something there. And and I I'm I'm not looking forward to to finding out what it is very soon, but because I like living this life uh -huh. so much, but I'm I'm comfortable letting this life go, and that's about all I know how to say. Uh, I think it's important for people to recognize that there's a difference between resurrection and resuscitation. Most most of what we talk about is resuscitation. Jesus didn't rise from the dead. He didn't get resuscitated back into the life of that he was living before he was crucified. He got resurrected into a new life. I don't know what that new life is. Paul struggled with a, a way of finding it that, that was different, but he, he had to use the language of this world. He kept talking about how, you know, you, 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 you grow seeds and the shell dies and something keeps going on. I don't know what it is, but I know it, it's powerful and I know it's real. Bishop John Shelby Spong is the author of Unbelievable, Why Neither Ancient Creeds Nor the Reformation Can Produce a Living Faith Today. This is my last question, Bishop Spong. Uh, I first uh, heard of you, and I think the first book I read of yours was Why Christianity Must Change or Die. It wasn't long after I went into the ministry, and you've been, uh, for me, I'm not, I'm not going to get too sentimental about this, but you've been uh, a very helpful figure, uh, even though I, I've, never, I've met you once personally, but really it's, it's more of a mentorship of reading what you've done. Uh, my question is this one. What advice... Would you have now for students who are going into the ministry? Well, that's a good question. I've thought about it a lot. The first thing I'd say is that as I think about what it means to be a priest or a minister in the Church of God, I'd do it all over again, despite what I've what I've written. I'd do it all over again because I think there's something about being in the church that is uh, so important. If we could ever get it right. And so I'd, I would say that, unfortunately, and that's not the kind of person that seeks the priesthood usually the, or seeks the ministry. Usually the person is looking for some cover f from security, from the insecure world, and I don't think that's where it's going to be found. I think you ought to embrace your insecurity and rejoice in your insecurity and and uh, live with it, with it open. And I think you ought to walk through every door that comes down. Uh, every door that looks closed, you ought to go and open it and walk through it and see what happens. I think there's a spiritual nature in humanity that wants and needs to be uh, affirmed. I'm not sure the Christian church will last, and I'm not sure the minister will last, but the, there's something that's so real about it, and all we do is play around the edges and touch it a little bit, and there's got to be sometimes that we break through and begin to see what it's all about. And I would love to be a part of that for the next 50 or 75 years, uh, but I won't. But I, I, I think it's going to be something that people will like. People will look on this book, and they will say, well, my goodness, he didn't even scratch the surface of the things we want to talk about. And I think that's right. But I scratched the surface of all that we can talk about today, and there's a lot more coming up, and it's going to be an exciting time.
It is. Bishop Spong, thank you. Uh, on behalf of, of many people, all these believers in exile, <laughs> uh, ministers like myself and others and so many different people for for being brave and going through those closed doors and, uh, and also for this book today. Thanks so much for having me, John. I appreciate it. We've now finished four interviews in my five-part series on revisioning Christianity. Find a podcast of the interview you just heard with Bishop John Shelby Spawn, plus interviews with John Dominic Crossan, Bart Ehrman, and David Skrbina at ProgressiveSpirit.net. Still to come in this series, Angela Yarber, creator of the Holy Women Icons Project. The Holy Women Icons Project isn't just a book or writing, it isn't just the artwork, but we're hoping that it's a movement. We've turned it into a 501c3 nonprofit. We have three really exciting programs that we're launching this year. And the work is, for me, very enlivening and meaningful um, to be able to research these revolutionary women throughout history and mythology around the world, and then to kind of give traditional iconography a folk feminist twist by painting them and then writing about them, because their stories are so amazing and so underheard that uh, they deserve to be told and celebrated and lauded and stained in glass and hung in every cathedral and entered into every textbook all over the world because that's how amazing these women are. Progressive Spirit is heard every week. On Progressive Spirit, you'll hear interviews with cutting-edge scholars, authors, and activists who have something to say about social justice, human flourishing, and things that matter. Progressive Spirit is formatted for radio and is distributed every week through the Pacifica Radio Network and PRX, the Public Radio Exchange. Progressive Spirit is perfect for public radio, community radio, and college radio stations. Thanks to the following stations for carrying Progressive Spirit each week. WETS, Johnson City, Tennessee. WEHC, Emory, Virginia. WPVM, Asheville, North Carolina. Kutztown University Radio, Kutztown, Pennsylvania. KCEI, Taos, New Mexico. KACR, Alameda, California, WDRT, Viroqua, Wisconsin, KSOW, Cottage Grove, Oregon, KYAQ, Newport, Oregon, KZ88, Kabul, Missouri, KBOG, Bandon, Oregon, and 3A Oldies 91.9 in Epsom, New Hampshire. You can download Progressive Spirit for free on your favorite podcast app. The website is progressivespirit.net. Follow on Facebook and Twitter. Progressive Spirit is produced in the studios of KBOO in Portland, Oregon. I'm John Schock. Be well. Mm-hmm.